Hello everyone and welcome to Behold, the podcast where we try and answer once and for all, what is the best comic book adaptation? Yes, be it movie or TV show, we'll watch it and rank it until one stands as the definitive number one. And who's we? Well, I'm your host Andrew and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Mick Snowden. Hello! So, how are you today, Mick? Absolutely splendiferous. Well, that is that is a good note to start the podcast off on, and I think yeah, I uh, I couldn't be in a more contented state of mind. I feel like this is a trap, but we're going to push forward anyway. <laughs> so, just a little note before we kick things off on this show. Um, so this is officially kind of episode one of Behold, but people who have been following our previous podcast four panel might recognize this as the uh, as the format we started over there. And so we're continuing to sort of spin that out. And if you want to listen to any of those old episodes, as well as a couple we did as kind of in between episodes while we were still figuring out the nuts and bolts of things. You can find those on our feed as Vault of Behold. Think of but, this as the venom to Sony's Spider-Man universe. I mean, look, that that movie made money. If we make Venom money, I'll be happy. <laughs> but since this is a bit of a fresh start, shall I uh, run through our list from one to eight? Or maybe yes, even please. eight to one. Yes, please do, because I am a man of a certain age and may have forgotten the order. Look, I'll admit I opened this document up. I forgot we'd watch some of these. <laughs> so, I mean, some of them we wanted to forget watching. Speaking of, number eight, Titans Season 2. Then moving up to number seven, we've got Birds of Prey, the 2002 TV series. Then... Making a nice DC sandwich at number six. We've got Titans season one. At number five, Lock and Key season one. Or as it still reads on the notes, Locks and Key season exclamation mark. Because I didn't pay attention when I put that one in. <laughs> at number four, season one of the Harley Quinn animated series. At number three, the Birds of Prey movie. At number two, the Crisis on Infinite Earths Arrowverse event. And at number one, the Watchmen TV miniseries. Which is so, taking some shaking, it has to be said. It is indeed. That's a very, very DC-heavy list at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, but I think that's because um, there's been more DC to talk about. Yes, it's basically lots of DC stuff came out at around the time we started doing this. Um, so it made more sense to come for all of that. And all the Marvel stuff either got delayed due to coronavirus or axed by Netflix. Yes, this is this is going to be an interesting podcast to find subjects for up until about November time, isn't it? Well, it's all right, because we've, we've got the 1944 Batman series to look forward to. Indeed. But enough with your DC talk. We're moving <laughs> on. But we're not just moving on. We're changing we're evolving. 
we're becoming some kind of homo superior. Because behold, X-Men. The, the first movie, not the, not the cartoon series, or one of the other movies. Or one of the other cartoon series. Or the copyright-friendly TV series. Yes, not... Yeah, I, I guess technically Mutant X is not within our remit, is it? Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> anyway, while we're signing this sigh of relief, uh, let's kick off this X-Men topic with what might be a somewhat one-sided segment. Mick, what's your history with the X-Men, be it in comic book or any other format? Right, well, in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, um, I was devouring pretty much every comic book I could. Um, as much as my paltry uh, salary at the time would allow me to. And it was mainly sort of big collected trade paperbacks because uh, comics weren't as popular as they are now. It was very difficult to find a comic shop that stocked everything. Uh, so I did read some sort of like big storylines with X-Men in. Uh, but it was, let's face it, it was mainly Wolverine that you read, right? Yeah, and I guess it's a difficulty. Cause, I mean, even I, like, coming along quite a few years later, it was still in a fairly similar situation of just not entirely sure where one goes to get comics. Because you've got, like, a slim bit of a newsstand at WH Smith's and not much else. And that's especially tough with the X-Men because you've got like a big chunk of history basically from like the very late 70s to the 90s where it's all Chris Claremont. It's all like one continuous storyline. And so it's very hard to get into when you're just sort of picking and choosing band and bits and bobs. Yeah, that, I, that was the same. Loved Wolverine. It was very into like any story with Wolverine in it. Yeah, and out of the other X Men, there were there were a few characters that stood out as being um, quite memorable. Um, Storm tended to have good storylines. Um, Beast could provide some humour uh, quite a lot of the time. Um, I think Mystique was quite a an interesting character because she she was a and I know I know you're trying to get away from the DC bias but um, she was a kind of sort of catwoman type figure in that she wavered between being good and evil through the storylines I remember so um, yeah yeah she's, she's one of those yeah. very fun kind of femme fatale type characters isn't she yeah and uh, of course that the, her her mutant power opens up so many different uh, uses for her so as a as a plot device so but yeah it was it was mainly what's Wolverine up to and I guess that that kind of is supported by the fact that he's the one who tends to have the bulk of the solo runs rather than the other x-men yeah yeah I, th I think we both definitely had a lot more exposure just like Wolverine solo series is 
you can say that again. The X Men. No, no, I definitely cannot. That's far too many S's. <laughs> so, interestingly, I think what's influenced us both a lot more than the comics, and you, it seems more like sort of the ripple effect of how it impacted the comics themselves, is the uh, the X Men animated TV series, because that's very much that same kind of. Your intro to X-Men, Wolverine is the cool one, Beast is the funny one, Storm can do like cool lightning bolts and stuff. And I feel like for me, like kind of a whole generation, that's our entry point into X-Men. That's like, this is who this team is. And any comic I read, I'll be like, basing it off of, this is my understanding of the characters. Yeah. And I think similarly, a lot of the comics started reflecting that. And so that's the kind of stuff you would see as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I came to the X-Men animated stuff quite late and it was um, during a dark time in my day, daytime career, um, which was uh, which meant that I was between between jobs for a while. And I think they were available on Amazon Prime for free for a while. The first, uh, first few series of X-Men. And uh... Yeah, gosh, I sure hope our listeners can sympathise with <laughs> being stuck at home with no real job to go to and nothing to do but watch old cartoons. Yeah. I, I sure that, hope that connects to someone out there. <laughs> Man, that was a dark fault, no. Um <laughs> But the thing is, um some of the some of the characters and some of the plot lines and and, and I guess some of the X-Men tropes stuck with me more from that than it did from the Fox movies. Yeah, because so, I think yeah. like the the cartoons were literally like if you took all the X-Men comics, stuck them in sort of like a juicer. Like what comes out the other end is X Men the animated series. Yeah. So yeah, I think it was. So I think it was really not until like 2010 that I properly got into the X Men comics. Yeah, and you know I've I've read a few since um, as part of doing four panel, and I've read. I think the problem is with the X Men. Um, it's gone far beyond a sort of core team. It's like the Avengers has got a core team. There's sort of four or five characters that are regularly part of the Avengers, and every now and then one of them will be out of the action for a while and they'll draft in some subs. Um, yeah, but there's always going to be like but, but there Captain is America and Iron Man and Thor and yeah, like whereas, Scarlet Witch and people like that. Yeah, whereas, and you know, They've they've kind of got an, an inner circle. There's like the there's like the uh, executive board of the Avengers, and then there's like the upper management. <laughs> and then there's the plebs who get called up occasionally. Um, whereas with the X Men, every time I pick up an X Men comic, there's there's like some new character with a big storyline that I, I 
I'm not even sure by the time I've got to the end of the storyline what their power is supposed to be. Yeah, it's a, is it the point we are getting at is that more than any other comic, X-Men is like very heavily continuity driven. Yeah. Which can make it a bit imposing to get into. Yeah. I mean, I, I believe there is a beginner's guide to the X-Men and it's currently on volume 47. Or, if you wanted a beginner's guide to the X-Men, X-Men the movie from the year 2000. Yeah. So, this movie was directed by Brian Singer. And one of my favourite bits of trivia that I always forget about a little bit, written by David Hayter, voice of Solid Snake from the Metal Gear Solid games. That would only mean anything to anyone who's ever played a Metal Gear Solid game. It is. You were you so were not the ideal audience for, for that, that bit of trivia. So, so that's 50% of this podcast's uh, cast. <laughs> Actually, I've not ever played a proper Metal Gear Solid game. <laughs> right, so your target audience for that was no one involved with the production of this podcast. Is that but I know me? that David Hayter is the voice of Solid Snake. Okay. Do you want to try and reach out for anything from Tom DeSanto? Who wrote the story with Brian Singer? No, no, I do not. What I do want to okay. do is move on to a synopsis for this movie. Okay. <laughs> so, it's the year 2000. Humans now live in fear of a new race known as mutants. People with extraordinary abilities. People who are seen as being a bit different. Indeed. So, as the US government is discussing um, a Mutant Registration Act, which would require all mutants to register with the government, say who they are, what their powers are, this being spearheaded by Senator Robert Kelly. Uh, with all that of backdrop, we are introduced to one of our main characters, a girl named Rogue, who in this, I think, is called Marie, which... Little sidebar, that's a weird thing about Rogue, is for a long time she didn't really like have her name revealed. So you have like a whole lot of things like this, where it's like maybe her name's Anne or Anna or Anna Marie or Marie Anne or just Marie or Stacy or Colin. Who knows? <laughs> Anyway, Rogue discovers that she is a mutant, and unfortunately her mutant ability is to drain the life force of other people whenever they make skin contact. Which is unfortunate, because she discovers that whilst nearly smooching her boyfriend to death. Which, public service announcement, don't smooch boys. It never <laughs> ends well. <laughs> so, after that, she runs away to Canada and meets our second character who, who I guess is kind of, you know, just a just a very small bit part in these movies, isn't he? He, he is. He, he, he's, it's, it's almost Stanley-esque, his cameo roles in this series of movies. Yes, I am, of course, talking about Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. <laughs> because 
as as we discuss more of these series, and I assume most of our listeners probably know, these films are very much Wolverine, the Wolverine show, and also the X-Men are in it sometimes. Yeah, and that got progressively more so, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think one thing about this movie, it is probably the most X-Men of the X-Men films, whereas the others are very much like Wolverine in the X-Men. Yeah. So which would be well, a really cool name for a band. And also probably a really cool name for a comic and animated series. Well, yeah. It was both those things. <laughs> so Rogue meets Wolverine and they decide to start traveling together only to quickly find themselves dragged into a conflict between two warring groups of mutants. So first of all, we have Professor X and his X-Men. We're trying to teach mutants to control their powers and kind of live in harmony with mutants. And Magneto and his brotherhood of mutants, who I guess in this version are just more morally ambiguous. Yeah, <laughs> yes. They're, they don't seem to have aligned themselves with uh, any particular moral code yeah. at the moment. Which, I mean, to be fair, I guess. But when trying to make like a statement of no, how dare you treat mutants with fear and hatred? Calling yourself the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants probably isn't a great start, is it? No. Uh, no, you're right. It's it's probably not. Yeah. Uh... So Magneto and his Brotherhood, uh, they want to capture Rogue and use her to power a big old spinning machine that's going to turn all of humankind into mutants. Which is just a I forgot like how much this film's plot is just a ridiculous Silver Age X-Men comic. Well, the the thing that gets me with it, before we, I mean, you know, before we diverge too far away from a synopsis scenario, but all the way through it, Magneto is spoiling for a fight with humans when all all along his entire fight, his entire plot is to effectively avoid that fight completely. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you could explain that as just he is like putting on a front. And if anything, I feel like that works better for Magneto because this is kind of like a, a or quite a bit of a sensitive subject. Is that as the film reveals Magneto, he was originally like a, a teenager in the 1940s and was interred in like one of the Nazis' concentration camps for being Jewish. And so, like, I've always felt it's like a little bit not great to have him then go, right, I guess I'm just going to wipe out all the humans then. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I get why he'd be bitter, but I think I think this is one of the problems that some of these um, superhero movies sometimes have is that when they find a parallel, um, they not only overdo it, but they miss the point entirely almost. Yeah, I think it's... I think some of the later movies do a better job, like especially X-Men First Class, of like drawing that parallel between... 
basically Magneto is a guy who is part of two separate groups of oppressed people, and that's why like he's incredibly bitter against humanity. Yeah. But this one... This one just does not have time. There is a lot to squeeze in. You've got a lot of characters to introduce. Yeah, it's... But should, should we kind of run through the main characters? Yes, because of course... What what this what this film does is it harks back to a time when they could attract actors who could actually act. Gasp! <laughs> how how dare you be making assertions like that? Uh, so shall we shall we start at the very top of the the, the pecking order in in the uh, school for the gifted? Yeah. So our X Men are Professor X himself, Charles Xavier. Played by one Sir Patrick Stewart. Then moving down, we have his team of Cyclops, played by James Marsden, Storm, Halle Berry, Jean Grey, Famke Janssen, and then Wolverine, who, as we mentioned, Hugh Jackman, the greatest showman himself, and Rogue, who is played by Anna Paquin. As well as a bit of a cameo from Iceman, played by... Oh, is it Sean Ashmore? Which which Ashmore? One of the it? Ashmores. It's Sean. <laughs> I mean, having two identical twin brothers who both go into acting is just—that's not fair. I blame the parents. Although it does come in handy when one of them needs a stunt double. That's pretty true, I guess. Or you need a fight to involve like... two of them. <laughs> So you have to flip a coin to see which one has to be the stunt double. <laughs> anyway, on the uh, Brotherhood of Evil Mutant side, we have Magneto, played by also Sir Ian McKellen, uh, Mystique, Rebecca Romjin, Toad, played by Ray Parks, a Mr. Darth Maul, and Sabretooth, who is played by Tyler Mayne. And yeah, I think, I think it's a well-cast movie. Not necessarily everyone is given as much stuff to work with as I would like. By which I mean Halle Berry. That's true. Um, she's a bit of a MacGuffin, really, is this Storm in this, isn't she? She's like, we remember that she's in the film when she's, her, her abilities are very useful to get us out of a tricky situation. Yeah, that's... I mean, that, that's basically, like, throughout all the films she is in, she is basically there to stand around until she gets, like, one trailer shot scene of her doing some lightning. Which is a shame, because um, when this film came out, I only had the memories of those 90s comics that I read, but it looked like the perfect casting for Stone. Yeah, I... Th- but it's kind of hard to be too like, yeah, she was that well cast. Because again, Halle Berry spends most of these movies standing around not doing all that much. But what I mean is when the announcement came out that Halle Berry was going to be Storm, you think, oh, actually, yeah, that'll work. With When you have no pre-knowledge of how little of the story she's going to get. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. That's just, I guess the other thing for me is James Marsden is like very much the sort of boring jock guy Cyclops. Yeah. 
like his main character trait is just does not like Wolverine making moves on his girl. And that's that's another thing because I feel like a lot of X Men talk about now is looking at how the franchise kind of moved forward. Is I feel like this movie had a lot of bits. Well, I say a lot of bits, a few bits where you could see like kind of the start of a bit of a fun rivalry between Cyclops and Wolverine. But then, because Wolverine was so popular, he started becoming like the de facto X Men leader, and Cyclops was just sort of shoved off to the side. Yeah. Like you've got the whole like Wolverine. How do I know it's really you? It's just like because you're a dick. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. It. And it, rewatching this, I mean, I, as you know, and as listeners to uh, Four Panel will know. Um, I have a problem with X-Men movies in that I can watch them and within probably 24 hours I've forgotten almost everything that's happened in them. Yes. Also, don't worry, audience. Mick finished watching X-Men about like 30 minutes before we started recording. Yes. Yes, I did. Did I? What film were we talking about? Um, Deadpool, isn't it? Is it? No, no. So it's it's all those Deadpool prequel films they did. Ah, right. With you. Uh. <laughs> oh, that's gonna that's gonna lose us some listeners. Yeah. <laughs> so it's. Uh, but I think. Um, I think. Of all of them, this is probably the best oh see i would disagree i think x-men 2 is pretty much universally agreed to be the best one yeah but what you've got to remember is i can't remember it now so what you're saying is x-men 1 is the best of the x-men films that you can remember that's which right. consists entirely of x-men 1 that's right however i can tell you categorically that I am fairly certain that X-Men 2 is better than most of the rest. Yes. Because, as I recall, there is definitely a lot of diminishing returns. I think it's kind of like X-Men going up to X-Men 2, going way down to 3, going... Man, is X-Men Origins Wolverine worse than X-Men 3? That's a question for another day. But anyway, <laughs> it, it dips upwards a bit with First Class and then Days of Future Past is, is pretty good. I quite like that. But then the last two are, are not good at all. But yeah, X-Men. I th- but I, th- I think um, as we're focusing on X-Men from 2000... Um, I think generally it holds together well as a plot. It's thin, but it holds together yeah. relatively well. Yeah, I think, like I was kind of hinting at earlier, I think it very much to me feels like you can see they had a much longer movie planned and had to be very strict with trimming it down. But no, I think it's a good, tight story. It's not like certain superhero films. There are 
like no parts that I feel like drag on too much. It's very like tight. It's very zippy. It's got some fun bits. It um, feels like a comic book film. That's what it feels like. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's trying to be anything more than that. Well, I think like one of the really interesting things about X-Men, which is like specifically why I wanted to do it for this episode, is it's basically the first like modern superhero blockbuster. Like this is the one that pretty much set the precedent that things like the MCU and the DC films are still building off today. Indeed. Uh, yeah, I think that's a fair comment. I mean, by this point, we're, what, 11 years on from um, Tim Burton's Batman, which hadn't really spawned the sort of mega industry that comic book movies are now. Um, yeah, exactly. In, and... in, in fact, the, the the comic book movie was going through its uh, sort of dead phase, that thanks to Joel Schumacher. Yeah, I mean, we still had some because, like, we got the uh, the first Blade movie before this one. But I feel like that's very much a we have made a '90s action film, and are, like just attaching this branding to it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I think that was the case with with quite a few. Um franchises during the sort of late 90s early 2000s it was like here's a random plot that we've got kicking about is there is there a popular franchise that we can crowbar over the top yeah because a lot a lot of comic book movies didn't feel you didn't get the feels for it if you were a fan of that character yeah and that's that's i think what i would say is a massive point in this film's favor is it feels like the x-men yeah. Like, it's got the whole mutant metaphor, people hating us. It's got the mansion. It's got, like, the cerebro, and you've got the blackbird, and you've got... Yeah, it's, like, it's, like, it's like someone's got all the uh, all the X-Men top trumps and ticked off the little box. Yeah. Well, and, like, crucially, they have said, okay, what do people want to see in an X-Men movie? Let's get it in there. I think maybe the one exception being the um, the costumes, obviously, where they've just kind of gone for more black leather bodysuits. But I feel like that's kind of understandable. Well, I, th- I think, first of all, you've got to think about what else was coming out at around that time that was in the same kind of target audience thing. So you had a lot of things like Dark Angel um, that were coming out that were kind of darker and grittier and sort of built around stealth and undercover operations and oppressed minorities trying to rise up and fight. And I think that it sort of followed that kind of zeitgeist. Yeah, exactly. And I think the thing is, like, obviously superheroes, they're just a thing that we're very happy to accept today. But back then it was very much, no, comics are silly and goofy and for kids. Like, we need a way to like make this cool by the standards of a of a general movie going public. Yeah, like it, it is something they need to be sold on, and so it's kind of understandable why they made concessions like that. And I, also, I think that was, I think that was the other big thing it did. Um, it managed to it managed to do 
all the sort of backstory that you would normally get in one fairly efficient lump. You didn't need to. You didn't need to know the fact that they mention everybody in it is a mutant. That's it. You don't need to know how they found out they were a mutant. I mean, we get to see it with Rogue, but you don't find it out with everybody else. Yeah, and you don't need to. The the fact we are all mutants does the job. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely one of the advantages of the X Men is that you do not have to spend like time on every character's introduction explaining how they got their powers, which I guess is why you can have kind of a larger cast like this and it still works. Yeah. Anyway, going back to the cast, uh, probably like characters we definitely do like. Like, as, as much as I've been kind of joking around, I do really like the Hugh Jackman Wolverine. Yeah. Um... Like, I think... He just he gets the essence of the character, which and is I think, kind of crazy considering physically he is not Wolverine in the slightest. Wolverine is like five foot three, very hairy, not this six foot rippling Australian Hugh Jackman looking guy. <laughs> but just you don't question it. No, I mean I I think. I think what they've managed to do is they've they've managed to take the essence of the Wolverine character from the comics and and sort of mould Hugh Jackman as far as they can into that role. Because yeah. let's face it, anyone in real life with Wolverine's hair would just be a laughing stock. So it's got just so the this... hours he must spend styling it. Yeah, so this Logan, or Wolverine, has a toned-down version of the... Co- and, and that's what I like about this. It, it's all slightly not as big as the comics. Even Cyclops' um, visor, it's not as full-on as what you see in the comics. Yes, it is. If it was, like, a bright canary yellow, this movie would maybe not work as well as it does. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So yeah, that, that I, I think you're right. I think um, Hugh Jackman probably has read a, a little bit of Wolverine uh, and sort of got to grips with the character and understood what he's like. Um, and he, it would be so easy, given given the backstory that he's given uh through the other characters that he doesn't remember who he is, where he comes from, etc. He doesn't he doesn't go all broody over it. Which it would have been easier to do, you know, to just spend all the scenes where he's not interacting with other people, just moping around and looking moody and sinister and brooding and he doesn't do that. He's just a guy yeah, drinking a beer, having yeah, a fight. Yeah, that's a very, like, a very like, specific gruff uncle yeah. thing that Wolverine has going on. Yeah. So I think, I think it's probably as not perfect as you're likely to get in a comic book movie. Certainly at this point, anyway, when, yeah. when it wasn't a, almost an art form in itself doing a comic book movie. I mean, also, that being said, though, both Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen, very good. 
Yes, Ian McKellen could so easily have chewed the scenery as Magneto. Yeah, I think he's he's kind of he's just hammy enough, isn't he? Yeah, and he, he kind of does in later later installments. He does increase the ham factor in later installments, but in this one, he's he's just the right side. Yeah, he actually he does a really good job of making you kind of believe him, even though it's like inherently ridiculous. Like he lives in a giant hollowed out mountain. He's got a massive spinny death machine. Yeah, but like, you still invested it just because of that performance. Yeah, and also like his big satiny shirts. <laughs> and of course, the other thing you don't see in in this movie is the helmet. No, no, he does have the helmet. Does he? You see, this yeah. is the effect X Men movies have on me. See, I, you thought we were joking. I can't remember seeing him in the helmet. I remember seeing him chapter Xavier. I see. I remember seeing him threaten people, but I can't what? remember him wearing the helmet. That's very specifically, like, in the scene where they're um. I think it's just after they kidnap Rogue and like all the police try and stop them. And then Magneto does the thing where like he takes the guns and points them all at them. Right. And then Charles like tries to stop him. He's all I'm trying to get in my head, Charles. And then he kind of Oh yeah, and the helmet the helmet yeah. stopped him. And and then Xavier mentions that later on. I did see that. But that kind of makes my point. It's it's not when you see Magneto in the comics, he's almost always got it on. To the point where it looks a bit ridiculous. I mean, Alec, I think... Ian McAllen just had it in his contract. I've, I've, <laughs> not, I've not quaffed this hair for nothing. <laughs> I'm spending as little time in the helmet as possible. <laughs> I am not spending the rest of this movie with helmet hair. <laughs> yeah, anyway, I think those are kind of the big performances. But Mystique, yeah. though, I really like as well. Yeah. I think like she does a very good job with like not as much screen time, still making a really like big impression. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it must be a really frustrating role for an actress. You know. Oh, we're gonna cast you in X-Men. Alright, what am I playing? Mystique. Okay. How much of the screen time that's Mystique am I actually in? Oh, about twenty five percent. Yeah, because the seventy five percent you'll be played by someone else. <laughs> Oh, also, now sit down for like the next 20 hours while we get this makeup on you. Yeah, for your for your five minutes of screen time today. To be fair, though, that, that makeup does look really good, though. Just like the it weird does. sort of scaly, feathery blue stuff. Yeah. I, like, I really like the... um. Even the CGI, I think, on the transformation sequence still works quite well. Just that weird sort of like rippling effect. Well, yeah, and... The, the weird thing is, because I, I had to check the credits because I couldn't remember who played um, Mystique in this movie until I read the credits. Whereas in the later movie... Who plays Mystique is Rebecca Romjin, Sean Ashmore, 
whoever the Henry guy, guy was. Yeah, yeah, Jackman yeah, yeah. And Halle Berry. Right. We'll just stick with Mystique, right? But I couldn't remember who played Mystique, whereas in the later X-Men movies, it's so very obviously Jennifer Lawrence. Yes, that might be because Jennifer Lawrence was got very shirty about having to spend that long in the makeup chair. And that's why Mystique, you know, develops the ability to just look like Rebecca Lawrence with a bit of blue face paint on. Yeah, which, you know... Well, as I say, this, yeah, well, is, this is a film we'll from the get era where... to you, Lawrence. This is, this is a film from the era when the X-Men were played by actors. So... So, yeah. Also, I think probably my favourite bit in this film was... Um, is a something that I have a big complaint with in a lot of modern superhero films. I really enjoyed the final fight between the X-Men and the Brotherhood. Because... Like everyone has different powers, and so it's lots of like very different fight scenes. Ah, I have got one problem with the fight scene. Okay. Is it me or is Toad a bit overpowered? Oh, Dave, Toad is the strongest I mean, X Men. Look, he, the he takes out three X Men whilst Mystique is still trying to tit about with Wolverine. Look. The X-Men villain <laughs> rankings go like um, William Stryker, Apocalypse, Magneto, Toad. <laughs> so if Toad's so hot, why does Ian McKellen keep sending out Sabretooth to, do, to, to screw up? I mean, you know, Listen, Magneto's look, supposed look, to be clever. Here's right? the thing, Mick. Sabretooth, he wears a lot of furs and that cave base gets incredibly damp and just the smell. He's, he's tried to tell him, Victor, just, just throw the furs out. They're ruined. But he doesn't listen. Uh. Also, the real answer to your question is that Ray Parks is like, a trained martial artist, and so is probably the best at fight scenes, and that's why he's so overpowered. Right. Because he, he manages to take out Jean Grey, Storm, and Cyclops. I mean, they they managed to get out of it, but he manages to take the three of them out. Yeah, yeah Toad is pretty impressive. But, but Mick, do you know what happens to a Toad when it's struck by lightning? The same as happens to everyone else. Wow, I even is... remember the bit of dialogue. I know. Which... I'm cured! <laughs> Here is my shocking X-Men confessions. <laughs> I, I quite enjoy that line. It's just like a slightly weird out of place. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It's, it, and it, it's timed so beautifully. It's like there's going to be this big revelation. It's like, you know, like one of those... It, it's almost like it's a fact that she's got from watching QI that frog uh, toads do something really unusual when hit by lightning, like, I don't know, glow purple or something. <laughs> Same as happens to everything else. <laughs> I, just think, 
I mean, yeah, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> Toads, in fact, do not like being struck by lightning. But yeah. In the same way as nothing else does. So, to be fair, from what I can understand, is it, like one of the things that was cut was that Toad was supposed to have like a bit of a running thing where he keeps saying, do you know that Toads can do? And then he would whip out that kind of weird QI-esque fact. All right. Like he said, like, I don't know, like some Toads can spit globs of mucus and then he'd do the mucus spit thing. And so Starfire right. is supposed to be like a comeback to that. Ah. But then they cut all of that out and so she's just got this one random line. Which again... I love. It's, al- it's almost more beautiful for that. <laughs> it is. It's, it's lessened by the explanation. Yeah. Take your explanation. Edit the explanation out. Yeah. Speaking of editing, like I did really enjoy the editing. Where, like Storm hits Toad with the lightning, and then you see her run back inside, and then Storm meets up with Wolverine. And you're supposed to think, oh no, that Wolverine's actually Mystique. Yeah. But then it's actually Storm who's Mystique. And it's just the editing tricked you into thinking you were following the same Storm. Yeah. And I thought that was just that was a neat bit of bit of film cinematography. It was See, indeed. I can I can say proper things about films. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's enough chit chat. It's time to get to the the real question on everyone's lips. Where does X-Men rank on our list of one to eight? Well, do you know, for me, because it's... Because it is... It's lightweight, let's be honest. It's a fairly standard comic book plot. There's no real real nuance or depth to it. Um, But it's a solid comic book adventure. I want to put it... What's number four again? Uh, number four at the moment is Harley Quinn. The animated series. Yeah. In that case, I want to put this at number five. That is exactly where I was thinking. In between Harley Quinn season one and Lock and Key season one. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a miracle. For the first time in nearly three years, we have agreed... I mean, I'm a bit disappointed, to be honest. I was, I was coming into this podcast being <laughs> very, okay, I know where I want to put X-Men, and I'm probably going to have to, like, argue against make one into rank it really lowly. But I think that's the thing. I think, overall, I've got a very negative opinion of the X-Men franchise. And that's mainly because of things like Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix. Is it because there's been more bad X-Men movies than there have been good X-Men movies? Yeah, and when you think, I've got to go back 20 years to find one this good. Unless, of That's course, it. it turns out that you're right about X-Men 2. But... I mean, actually, I say that's a good X-Men movies for me. Like, X-Men 1, X-Men 2, um, The Wolverine, which I know is kind of a controversial opinion. Actually, I a first class probably more it's all right, as is Days of Future Past. And then which Logan's the... really good. Yeah, Logan's good. Logan was um, a return a return to form for me. Yeah, um, the Wolverine is the one where he's in Japan. 
Right, so it's Wolverine Origins that's got the poor Deadpool. Yeah, the the Merc with no mouth. Although that was that was something that um when I watched Wolverine Origins, I hadn't realised. But when you see when Jean Grey does the flashback, um when she's rooting around inside Logan's head, um when you see him strapped to the X twenty three machinery He's got the same sort of facial markings as Deadpool in Wolverine Origins. Yeah, yeah, he does the same kind of weird lines and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Of all the bits of continuity for that film to care about. I know. I know, but, well, it's clear that whoever directed Origins did care about it. I mean, they obviously didn't care about anything else to do with continuity, but they cared about that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to, definitely, you can probably also argue a lot of that film's problems are maybe more producer-based. Yes. But again, this is a conversation for another episode. And another Specifically, bit... an episode on X-Men Origins Wolverine. Indeed. Another interesting bit of trivia about this film, which I think also contributes to the fact that it holds together well as a comic book, film is uh, Richard Donner was an ex- executive producer Ooh. and he's got form with bringing he superheroes to, t- to the movies well anyway I think that's probably about it from us for this week I think you're probably right so that's it from us this week if you like you've listened to you can find more episodes here on our feed or wherever you listen to podcasts new episodes are once every two weeks so uh check back for more or if you can't wait check out some of our both of behold older episodes and i think that's everything else so thanks for listening and until next time i've been andrew i've been mick and we'll catch you next time goodbye now to-do list think of snappier ending catchphrase (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.